RecruitersLiveLounge.com, Episode 7. EasyPay provide funding, payroll and back office services to support the recruitment industry. Go to EasyPayServices.co.uk forward slash RecLiveLounge. RecruitersLiveLounge.com, where you get to hang out with the most inspiring recruitment business leaders on the planet. Hosted by Roy Ripper. Hey everyone, welcome to Recruiters Live Lounge, where you get to meet and hang out with some of the most inspiring recruitment business leaders on the planet. And I am so excited today because I'm bringing you one of my mentors. Anyone that's that knows me knows I talk about this lady a lot uh, in terms of my background, etc. Um, today we've been really uh, fortunate to be able to welcome Anne Swain. And Anne is the CEO of APSCO, the Association of Professional Staffing Companies. Now, Anne's been around the recruitment industry for uh, probably more years than she or I would uh, care to admit. But um, she was also responsible for Learning Curve. I think she launched Learning Curve in 1988. um, And that was acquired by the Delphi Group back in 1997. Anne's experience, joking apart, over 30 years experience in the recruitment industry, and she's a well-respected authority within our industry globally. She's a speaker, a recognized speaker on the circuit. And, you know, look, and and for me personally, one of the most inspirational people that I've ever met in recruitment. So, Anne, how's it going? It's going well. I'm not sure I even recognize myself, Roy, with all of that intro, but thank you, kind sir. Thank you. <laughs> My absolute pleasure, and I meant every single word. And look, um, tell, uh, tell our viewers and listeners just a bit more about yourself and the work that you guys do down at APSCO. Um, okay. So I started in the recruitment market in just the beginning of 1982, actually, so a long time ago. Having come out of university in 81, went straight into advertising space sales in the recruitment market. And then from there on Computer Magazine, straight into my first recruitment job, worked in recruitment obviously for a number of years. Um, got involved in setting up training, as you said, and then actually started that business. Um, and so a long time in the market, and then set up APSCO, um, originally as APSCO, so the Association of Technology Staffing Companies. That was set up in 1999, off the back of IR35 legislation, um, and that was an interesting time. What is kind of spooky, I think, nowadays is that I said I would do that job for a year, Um, 15 years later, um, APSCO became APSCO, so it spread across from IT, across to representing the professional recruitment markets, so those people that place generally in niche markets um, and have specializations sometimes within those niches actually, um, both here and internationally. Um, We represent 650 odd recruitment companies. We don't have individuals or cap branches or anything, so specific companies across a whole range of things that we do. We're based in London, but we have offices in Manchester. We do a lot of work in Scotland and also in the Midlands. And of course, we have offices now in Singapore, running meetings in Singapore and also in Hong Kong. And watch this space for uh, further expansion overseas. 
Brilliant, Anne. Thank you for that. Um, and look, anybody that's interested, they, they're able to click on the links, etc., and find out more about Absco. Now, Anne, look, I'm really keen to uh, get into these questions. These are questions that I've been dying to ask you in all the years that I've, I've known you. Um, so I'm looking forward to the answers as much as I know our viewers and listeners will be. And if there was a success quote that you uh, apply to your everyday life, what's your favorite success quote that, that you apply? There's a few. There's a few that I kind of repeat, to be honest. Okay. Um, that you know haven't come from me, but they're ones that work and therefore get repeated. I think if I were to choose just one, I'll give you the other two because they're kind of interesting anyway. I think. Please. Um, but I think the biggest one for me has always been a quote. I can't even remember who said it originally, but it was about if if you're going to work on your character or your reputation, don't worry about your reputation. Work on your character. Because your character is really who you are, and your reputation is just who people think you are. Interesting. And that one leads to the other. Really and I think that's been useful. I think in a recruitment market that's useful because I think clients need to trust you and candidates need to trust you. And I think yeah. that if you can, if you really have integrity as part of your character, it really makes a difference. Um, and I think sometimes people do things to save a reputation and actually can forget that. If you have character, the right kind of character, your reputation just follows on. Um, the other two things that I, I've always said, and I, I get teased about saying it often, is from a training point of view, and even now people say it, that there's a lot of recruitment companies that always say, I don't want to spend loads of money on training my consultants because what if I spend all that money training them and they, they go? Sure. And I always used to say, but what if you spend no money and they stay? And it was a kind of like magic moment and people were like, oh, yeah. And you know, it still holds completely true now with any staff. Yeah. So we have that with AppSco as well, that we recognize we need to invest in our staff because actually it's the ones that stay that you want to have the most investment in with a view that you get your money's worth. But actually people stay longer, they do a better job, don't muck about on saving money on training. It costs you in the long run. And I think... I suppose I think the other thing that I read years ago um, about running a business, and it was a quote that stuck with me, mm. and that was that if you're in a business partnership uh, and that the two of you agree on everything, you don't need one of you. <laughs> and actually, I mean, I've, I've kind of, it's come to me on so many occasions, you think, blimey, I mean, that's so true. And I've, I've used it on the basis of not just getting rid of somebody, as it were, but, but actually making sure you surround yourself with people that don't agree with everything that you say. Because if you can surround yourself with 10 people that all agree with you, and you're all singing the same company song, then there's no innovation, yeah. there's no querying the pitch, really. And actually, I think it's important for growth of the business to have to be brave enough to have people that disagree with you, preferably not fisticuffs, but add add a different uh, view of something, and that's useful. And I love that quote, I really do, and it's not one that I was familiar with, but uh, but have learned <laughs> from go. that. And and it's interesting your second one that you mentioned about what happens if I spend loads of money on training and these people leave and, and join. I remember you saying that to, <laughs> to some of your clients. I remember seeing that eureka moment, or that light bulb moment for them. 
uh, when they realised that what you were saying was true. So it's true, isn't it? So it's definitely been a long one that I've had, and I do use it. <laughs> and somebody spoke to me the other day and said that he and somebody else were talking about me, and they were mentioning that. And then I realised maybe I'm overusing it, <laughs> but it actually is so right, and it is a eureka moment. You're right, absolutely right. So Anne, look, we we know at Recruiters Live Lounge that. Uh, behind anyone that's successful there's usually been some kind of adversity or setback can you talk to us about a specific time in recruitment or in any of the businesses that you've been involved in when you've had that kind of a setback and and what you've done to get past it I think I think look, I've got numerous setbacks obviously because I've been around a long period of time definitely longer than you or I care to actually uh, own up to but I think that something that really caught me heavily was my first cold call right and having been a fairly you know being quite an extrovert character i felt that it was obviously natural for me and that i was automatically going to be bloody great and i remember making my first phone call and actually asking an end user how comes, I'm quoting the term, how comes they had, had gone about running an ad rather than coming to a recruitment company <laughs> with this particular requirement? And the person said, how comes? What do you mean how comes? And of course, really, I just wanted to throw myself into a hole. And what's interesting is that embarrassment is one of those things that sticks in your memories. Sure. And so to this day, 33 years later, to this day, I remember how cringingly awful I felt and how I never wanted to go anywhere near a telephone ever again. <laughs> uh, but lucky enough, I did. I was with somebody who was listening in on the call as well, which was awful. And, um, and I picked the phone up straight away because I kind of had to. I wouldn't have done, I think. I had to. And of course, it kind of got better from there. So there's, there's that because it stuck with me. I think one of the worst things that I've done in the recruitment market was take the wrong job once, right. actually. And I knew it was the wrong job quickly. And I was a bit stuck. Right. And I was in an environment that didn't work for me and I felt miserable. And I think in the recruitment market, and any market where you are giving of yourself, you have to be in a place that you're comfortable to give of yourself every sure, day. Sure. And so I, I'm definitely one of those people that's pretty driven. I hadn't realized that until someone told me some years ago how driven I was, and I was oblivious. I thought everybody was that driven, but they're not. But I think if you're, if you're coming in every day and you're giving everything, you need to feel that the environment is one that has integrity or whatever is your hot thing. Sure. You need to feel comfortable in that place. and. And it took me a couple of years to get out of that environment when maybe I should have left after a week or something, I don't know. But it was the wrong environment for me and I, I did know it quickly. I was just about to say to you, Anne, how, how did you get past that? You know, you, you mentioned there it took you a little while to, I don't know, make the realisation or do something about it. But how did you get yourself out of that, uh, that negative situation? Well, the reality is, I, I tried, maybe again, it was a bit too much self-belief, but I tried to make changes, but I wasn't in a position to change the environment at large. Right. Okay, I was a fairly senior person in this company, but I still wasn't in a position to really make the change, and then in reality, I left, you know, I left and, and found something else. Sure. But I did learn from that, and I learned, especially when setting up something like AppsGo, that a fish rots from the head 
and that if you want something to have a specific culture, if you're heading it up, you need to make sure you set that culture up, recruit people that work within that culture and can thrive within that culture, not yeah. just survive it, um, and that you really need to be careful, not with just somebody recruiting people that can do the job, but that can do the job in the environment that you're putting them in and enjoy every day of that job. And I think in the recruitment market, there are days that are not good days, but if you feel you're, that you can buy the company ticket, as it were, yeah. and I'm a joiner in on yeah. things. I'm a bit naive on that in some ways. I'm, you know, I'll toot the blooming song for Christ's sake. I am that person that I, I've learned from that, that if it didn't work for me, then why would that work for anyone else? So with the APSCO environment, and we, we don't kind of lose staff, to be honest, but with the APSCO environment, that I wanted to set a culture and recruit as part of that culture, and that it was important to have that, and it to be strong and obvious to everybody, and that we should say what that culture is when we're recruiting people to make sure that it does fit. Because I'm not saying that um, our culture is the perfect one necessarily for everybody, but sure. it fits well with some people and less so with others. And I think we need to be acutely aware of it. I, and thank you for that. I, I, I think that's so true for you know for, for, for us, but for anybody that's watching this, it's... it's it, it, culture is something like Marmite, you know, it's like don't try and be beige or mediocre, set yeah. out your environment, be proud of it, recognize that some people aren't going to be right for that and you're not going to be right for them. But the ones that do, it's like they know what you stand for and they'll be with you for a long time, hopefully. I think that's it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's it. And I think you can't, you can't pretend with your culture because you get found out. So your culture and your brand should be the same thing, and they need to be authentic. Sure. And t tell us about, um, I don't know, that eureka moment for you. Um, in recruitment would be really useful, but that, that light bulb moment, you were working in recruitment, then all of a sudden it's like, whoosh, I've got this. Whether that was as a recruiter or whether it was a you know senior figure in, recruit in recruitment, when was that light bulb moment for you? What happened? I think I... I had a moment when I went to um, a big management consultancy um, that changed its name when a finance bit kind of went one way and, okay. and it changed its name because of all sorts of other things going on. But anyway, so years ago, I was working and running an account, really, potentially quite a nice meaty account with one of the big, um, big five, okay. seven of them then. But anyway, so one of those big companies. And... And I think the eureka moment was that it was successful and we were putting good people in there, permanent people. I did a mix of contract and perm. I, I count myself as a perm girl, really, but um, put some good permanent people in there. But they had a problem because of their image of who they were and the type of advertising. We did client-paid advertising, which dates me rather, but still. Um, did client-paid advertising for them, and but there were some problems with some other roles that were different. Right. And... I was able, because I'd been in recruitment for long enough, to really get to grips what the problem was. Mm. And it, you know, told them about the problem. And it was something they hadn't really worked out themselves. And this was a management consultancy that one would assume really knew what they were doing on everything. Sure. I mean, you know, and who can. Um, but I realized that I knew my stuff. And I think that prior to that, I always felt I was probably bluffing. Right. And I think that... Women, particularly, actually, always feel 
that we're bluffing. We feel we're bluffing doing whatever it is we're doing, even if it's motherhood, for heaven's sake, we think we're bluffing. Sure. I think recruitment people think they're bluffing. Look, sometimes they are, and there were times when I would definitely was bluffing. But, sure. but we can get to a level of knowledge and understanding and actually expertise where we can add real value. And it was a eureka moment because I, I didn't feel it was a transactional relationship anymore yeah. with that particular organization. And actually what it did was boost my confidence that perhaps I wasn't bluffing so much, I did know what I was doing, and that I didn't need to have transactional reactions, uh, tr sorry, relationships with any of my customers. And that, that's kind of interesting. I think a lot of recruitment consultants nowadays still don't really believe the value that we add in recruitment. And I think that they'll have a eureka moment, or if their managers or directors are savvy, they can create those eureka moments earlier on, rather than waiting for it to happen, sure. or, or perhaps never even happen, that people can really understand that we add absolute fantastic value as long as we're good at what we do and we know what we're talking about. And it, it was a big moment for me because I felt confident in charging a decent fee. Actually, I, I then took my, my fees up a bit because I felt I was worth it. And I did that you know, with a view that there was no negotiation ever of my fees after that, funny enough. Um, and the fees went up, my average margins went up across the board from a fee rate point of view and it was just about thinking, I am teaching these people how to do something that's my ballpark, not sure. theirs, and I'm worth it. Boy, we need to make sure we, we teach the youngins that. And I'm so pleased that you made that point and, you know, the takeaway there for me was about teaching the young'uns, but also um, that point that you made about women. I think um, for a lot of women watching this, it is that thing of almost um, giving yourself permission um, or, or b that belief, if you like. It's like, what you do is good. You just have to start believing in it. Yeah. Because um, it starts with you. And I, I think you, you, know, you demonstrated that in that story perfectly. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and my next question to you is, what, what do you do um, and I probably know the answer to this, but what do you do at, at APSCO to drive the standards of, of our beautiful recruitment industry? Um, well, look, I, I'm in a privileged position in the sense that APSCO is all about quality and all about standards. Sure. Um, one thing is, I don't call what we do an industry, I call it a profession. Good. And it sounds, it sounds as though a word doesn't make a difference, but I think... Actually setting up a new um, lexicon in the recruitment market is a good thing. So at APSCO, we talk about recruitment professional. We don't mention agencies. We talk about recruitment firms and companies good. and businesses and things like that. And that's just about making sure that, that my staff get the elevation that I think is worth it. But of course, we put a whole load of things. So membership for APSCO members is all about getting 20 references. It's about signing to the code of conduct. It's all about making sure that they've got enough information on compliance and appropriate behavior and working through different systems to make life easy for them to provide quality services. The professional development team here at APSCO do a fantastic job under Fiona Lando, as you know. So, you know, that works very well from an APSCO point of view across the board. Um, I think what we do is we bring information, intelligence and ideas to the recruitment market, to our members particularly, um, 
that allows them to move things forward. So for instance, this year we're not having a conference at AppsGo. Um, I've decided, you know, I speak at a lot of conferences and we always run uh, a big conference actually. You're known for it. Yeah, and this year we're not doing it. I'm doing something else. Okay. Um, which we're only just starting to communicate actually. I, like that I keep hearing that people go to a conference and they say if I get one nugget of information, it's been worth it. And you think, no, it isn't. It's not. Actually. Oh, no, it just isn't. So what we're doing is something completely different and it's all about quality. We're taking away a group of 30 MDs, directors of APSCO members on a three-night, three-day away session to a very nice hotel, actually. Um, and we are going to give them two, two uh, sorry, yeah, five, two-and-a-half-hour full-on facilitated sessions in groups of eight. Brilliant on director level strategic issues with a view that there's no nuggets of information this is all about a game changer that's brilliant and, and it's all about quality and we're doing that with our, with our partners in that at Deloitte so we we have Deloitte partners yeah. and a couple of our other colleagues from outside of Deloitte helping them delivering and facilitating growth of the senior people within the recruitment market, whether it be in their own businesses or part of a bigger company. And we're just starting to communicate. We haven't sent stuff out yet, but we will do. But I think that's all about quality. And that's all about changing expectations of what you can get. Because most of us running our own businesses haven't had that level of input. And, and listen, I, I know you guys do uh, fantastic work and, and, you know, about all the things that you've mentioned, but also, you know, I, I've, I've been aware of, of the events that you speak at and I know that you inspire, um, you and your team, you inspire this new generation of recruiters. So it's not just about the owners that you work with and those members, but, but some of the people coming through those organisations and into recruitment for the first time. So, you know, you do some sterling work there. Um, and I'm going to ask you to look into your crystal ball. Uh, you, you and I have worked around the recruitment industry for a long time. We've seen ups, we've seen downs, we've seen innovation. How do yeah. you think the recruitment profession is going to develop over the next, say, five years? I think if we look at the trends from the last five years, um, I think a number of those will continue, actually. Pretty obviously, you've got the external factors, technology is changing things, and in some ways, we're not using it as well as we might do, let's say, but I think technology has changed things, it's made us more speedy and whatever. But I think the big change that's coming upon us now is, is about the customer expectations of whether it's worth them spending money with us. So I think that the buyers of our services are more professional, want more information to make better decisions, um, and and that's no bad thing. It's good. Okay? Um, so I think buying has become more sophisticated, and that therefore dictates that we are more sophisticated in what we provide in order for organizations to make good decisions. Yeah. I think that the recruitment profession has become more niche-oriented because it dictates specialist knowledge of a niche as well of the as well as the recruitment process itself yeah and so i think that we need to show how knowledgeable we are with regard to that um, and that's by giving benchmarking information and you know becoming part of a niche that we know very well and i think that the biggest growth probably is that international stuff and so that's going to have been very um 
I suppose in some ways we've been very forceful in that and we've been ahead of the game by running trade delegations for our members and opening offices further afield. But what we see is that our members either are international or absolutely want to be. And the companies from research that, that we do each year, again with Deloitte actually, we find that it's the international footprint that is the expansion really. So where you know a small percentage of our members are opening another office in the UK in the next year, a huge percentage of our members that have a footprint outside of the UK are, are opening more offices outside to capitalise on different markets. So I think that it's about the sophistication of the market. I think it, that lends itself to us becoming more niche and showing our levels of sophistication and knowledge and information sharing. Mm. And I think it's about the international basis of recruitment because the world's definitely got smaller. And that you can make placements from London to Singapore easily, and you can make placements from Dubai to somewhere else or wherever else it may be. And that it's easy and interesting uh, and that lends itself to one opening offices further afield. So utilising, I suppose, some of the technology that allows us to what we're doing. And of course, Anne, the you know great answer. Of course, the thing about it is if recruitment businesses um, don't fully capitalise, don't go that niche route, don't you know sort of think globally in, in terms of the way that they can expand and grow then there is going to be a whole heap of competitors out there to them that are going to do exactly that and steal their lunch, right? Yeah. I mean, if we look, if you look at something like Singapore, I mean, that's one of the most congested from a recruitment point of view markets in the world. There's sure. 3,500 recruitment companies in a very small space. Yeah. Um, but there are some markets where you need to be in Singapore, and if you're not, people query. Look, I think the first step is always to try and make placements from the home base yeah. and build it up over a period of time and obviously do research and all of that kind of stuff to make sure it's the right thing at the right time, know when you're going to turn a profit, whatever, yeah. and how to make sure compliance is appropriate. But I think people are going to get left behind if they cannot offer the service to their clients who are always international pretty much yeah. um, and actually match their expansion with their own expansion overseas. That's great. And thank you very much for that. Now, listen, we're going to move into the lightning round. The lightning round. Um, I've been dying to ask you. I know other people are going to be really, really hanging on your answers on these ones. Um, let's kick off with the first question, Anne. What's the number one thing that you see holding back recruiters from being more successful? Uh, well, it, without question, it's lack of training. Um, I'm sure you're pleased with that answer, but that's the reality <laughs> check. Yeah, it wasn't a plant, so, but that's the reality check. And I still am surprised when I hear that people have been in a recruitment firm, often as a raw graduate or something, with very little training. You think you're setting someone up to fail. I do think the other thing that we need to be investing, if we're looking at training recruitment consultants and what we're doing, is to look at training not only in the sales side of our, our profession, but in the delivery process, and, and actually techniques to make good selection decisions and argue why they're good selection decisions that go beyond matching keywords. Right. And so I, I think that's what holds us back, and that's 
what can make the market quite commoditized that if you've got people that are trained in selling but not in understanding why somebody's a good match beyond those keywords we're not adding the value and it can give them a lack of confidence sure. which holds them back in the early days but actually mean that they don't, just don't achieve their potential with big interesting um, projects I suppose good thank you Anne uh, and what's the best piece of advice business advice that you've ever been given that you've ever received in the past um, I think if I look when I was a recruitment consultant somebody who was very good at their job said be a control freak <laughs> now I think they were speaking slightly to the converted in some ways because I've always been a bit of a control freak but I think as a recurring consultant to make things happen and not to be surprised by whether you hit a target at the end of the month is all about controlling the process 100%. and making it happen. So control freaks may not be the people you want to go out on a raz with or for um, a surprise do but they are the ones who make it happen consistently and appropriately all the time. So I think it's about control the process, be a control freak. I love, I love people that control the process because when they make placements, it's not a surprise to them. It's not like some of us, you know, mere mortals. I remember some of the placements that I made be like, wow, how did that happen? You know, so... <laughs> Um, I, I like the people that control the process. Great answer, Anne. Thank you. Um, Anne, is there any, I don't know, piece of software or an app or a resource that you use personally in your business that's working brilliantly for you? Just any kind of resource or, or whatever that you use personally? I am not the most technologically uh, whizzy person, I have to say. Sure. So my temptation is to say the telephone, I think, still is everybody's best tool. I get frustrated by emails being sent and an expectation, and my staff will tell you this, that I, I always moan at them for thinking that an email sells something, it doesn't. No. And an email is about confirming what's been said on the telephone. Good. Um, so call me old-fashioned on that. I think... Look, running a trade association now is different from being a recruitment consultant, sure. but I still think LinkedIn really works, doesn't it? And, you know, apps seem to have had their day, apart from the funky things we all play around with. Google Maps works pretty well for getting lost on route things, but, but the reality is I think LinkedIn has been a magical tool, and we get angry with them if we think they're going to eat our lunch in the recruitment profession. But the reality is there is no excuse for anyone to go to any meeting without being absolutely aware of whom they're meeting, who, where they've worked, what their experience is, what their, you know, blimey, what their sex life is like. You can get it all. <laughs> and there is no excuse for a lack of preparation. So I know that's a tad old-fashioned and maybe I should have thought of something a bit more whizzy than the telephone and LinkedIn. But reality check, those are the ones that recruitment consultants need to use properly, as do the rest of us. And I couldn't agree more with you. I think um, it was it was a mutual old acquaintance of both of ours and another mentor for me, Mr. Tony Byrne, that once said, 
you make your money on a telephone not shuffling paper and and i just think you can't beat that one um so true. isn't it yeah it's so true and and i think a lot of recruitment is is becoming quite email oriented now and i think people think if they've sent an email they've communicated yeah. well until the other person's received it and responded to it it doesn't kind of work and i think picking the telephone up rather than sending an email is definitely my my stance of things i think part of that is all is also because i'm a two-finger typist so <laughs> when people get emails from me from apsco often it might be you know a one word or a one-liner because frankly life's a bit short <laughs> for all that typing i never did typing at school and i haven't really learned since so and, and on behalf of the industry don't and <laughs> it'd be a wrong thing for you. let's face it definitely late for me so <laughs> Pick that phone up, I'd say. Good. Great piece of advice, Anne. Mm -hmm. And what's the best business book that you've read, say, in the last six months? Well, actually, I can tell you that. So I read a book recently. I went to an event and a guy spoke um, and his name was, actually, I might even check his name. Okay. Oh, yeah, Richard Heitner. Okay. Now, he's one of the directors of Saatchi's, the big advertising company. Nice. So not so shabby, he's done fairly well for himself. But he's written a really interesting book because I do read quite a lot of business books. Um, and this one's different. It's called The Conciliary. Conciliary, okay. And The Conciliary, you might remember, was the guy in The Godfather that was played by Robert Duval. And so he was not an Italian. He was the Irish he guy. He was the Irish guy, I remember. Who kind of pulled the strings and made things happen. And the big thing about him was that because he, he wasn't Italian and he wasn't related, he was never going to be a threat because he never wanted to be the godfather and he didn't have a hope in hell. Right. And this book is all about using that as an example about how your second in command can really make the business fly. And I think a lot of people, when setting up a recruitment company and any other business actually, often there's two of them. One of them is going to be the lead. Yeah. And the other one's going to be the second in command. And the second in command can become the most powerful person, sure. actually. And if you're lucky, that person steps into the second in command and, and doesn't want the limelight or the glory, but wants the real control. Yeah. And that they can add. And if both of you recognize whose role is what and are threatened by the roles, how fantastic in a business scenario that can be. And... It was a book that was just very different to other business books because, you know, we all read business books and you just think sometimes, often with the American ones, you can have one point that's just been pushed on you 28 different times <laughs> and, you know, and they're, they're making kind of a movie out of an advert, really, if you know what I mean. And so consequently, and I, th I think this book is well written. I think it's a different idea and I think it's actually very interesting indeed so i would recommend that book and you know what i haven't i haven't read that book sadly but i'm about to just on that description I yeah, think i'm, good. I'm yeah. intrigued now so thank you for that um and if uh, final question in the lightning round if you woke up tomorrow um and you still possessed all of the knowledge all of the experience that you have undoubtedly have um but your business wasn't around what would you do if you had to start all over again? What would you do? What steps would you take um, in terms of rebuilding? I, without question, might, might be a bit sad actually, I would start 
a trade association in the professional crook market all over again. I think Good. it's been, I think it's been absolutely necessary. Um, and when you're doing something that can make as big a difference as we've managed to make, from a lobbying point of view, and this and separating um, the more junior side of the crook market from that professional side. So we, we, we feel that we separate the industry from the profession. Yeah. And that from a lobbying point of view, we've had all, all the response from that that separates legislation from senior and junior. And prior to APSCO being formed, it was all counted as the same thing. Right. And it was dangerous because all legislation is about protecting vulnerable workers, whereas if you're placing IT professionals or chartered accountants or whatever, or any executive search in any environment, it, it just don't recognize no. vulnerable workers. So. I, I would definitely do the same thing. Okay. I suppose I would go straight into the professional market rather than do the IT thing, then engineering, then impressions. So I'd, I'd do it quicker, <laughs> Good. probably. Um, I would make it international quicker. Good. Um, and I would, yeah, I, but apart from that, I'd do the same thing, but on the basis of making those decisions more quickly. Brilliant, Anne. Great answer, and thank you for that. And we're coming towards the end of our session together. Um, if you could give us just one final piece of advice and also just let people know how they can get in touch with you after this show. Ah, okay, well, thank you for that. Um, a final piece of advice. I would say value what we do in our profession. You may not need to take yourself seriously. I've never taken myself too seriously. But boy, I take my job really seriously. And I think we should take the recruitment profession really seriously. I think we should charge good money for the work that we do and give a service that is fantastic and worth that good money. Because we change people's lives and we make businesses successful, and there's something really great about that. So that would be my, my one thing. Um, from an APSCO point of view, how do you get us? Check us out on the website, and all the contact details obviously are there, because if you're in Singapore, you can do the Singapore number, and I don't remember that off the top of my head, <laughs> or the Manchester number, or the Midlands number, or the London number, and that's on apsco.org, www.apsco.org. Um, and yeah, it'd be good to see you. You can ask for me. I speak to our members and anyone wanting to talk to me all the time. And we're in Towerbridge Road. People pop in and see us all of the time. Normally, I might say bearing gifts like chocolate <laughs> or crispy creams go down fairly well. So anyone in the neighborhood that wants to come in, bear chocolate, crispy creams, Friday, something fizzy, and uh, come and talk to us. But that's how you get hold of us priceless and listen thank you so much for joining us on the recruiters live lounge and sharing your experience your wisdom your humor but also your journey okay so thanks ever so much Anne. thanks right that's thank all you. right um and listen for everyone else watching um you can get more episodes of recruiters live lounge by just subscribing thanks very much to Anne swain ceo of apsco and uh, look forward to seeing you in the next one. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Recruiters Live Lounge with Roy Ripper. Join us next time for more insights and incredible success journeys to help you be a better recruitment business leader.
What would it feel like to get all of your back office administration done under one roof? EasyPay provide funding, payroll and back office services to support your recruitment business. EasyPay want to offer one month's free fees to any new customers who come through Recruiters Live Lounge. Just go to easypayservices.co.uk forward slash rec live lounge.